Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the world. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York. And on the show this week, we're all we're going to be talking all about happy endings um, in more ways than one. The, <laughs> Not in that way, I don't think. I, I think we are we actually going are. to be talking yeah, about that shit. way. Um, the Fed is ending its highly controversial quantitative easing program, and I think people are not generally pretty happy about that. Then there's the whole question of American apparel, Dove Chani, and all manner of endings, happy and maybe not so happy there. And for dessert, we'll talk about the end of publicly traded cupcakes, because, you know, there was a point in time not so long ago when you could buy cupcakes on the NASDAQ. And of course, we'll wrap up with our numbers lightning round as we do every week. Let me ask Kathy O'Neill and introduce her as well, the head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. Kathy, what is your number this week? Felix, my number is 27. 27. Hmm. Jordan Weissman, the Moneybox columnist at Slate, what is your number? Uh, my number is uh, 46,410. That's four significant figures. And my number... <laughs> My number is, is, is 25, or maybe it's 20. It's, it's, it's a little bit vague. Um, but, you know, it's in that neck of the woods, slightly lower than Kathy's number. We are going to start with bubbles and quantitative easing and big macro stuff, which we don't cover a huge amount here at Slate Money because it can be incredibly dull. But it's also quite important. And 
this week we were treated to the minutes of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee meeting back in July, when the or back in June rather, when the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve agreed with each other that the taper was going to come to an end in October. Now the taper basically means that what the Fed is doing is it's buying less and less bonds every month. It has this thing called quantitative easing where it goes into the market and buys billions and billions of dollars every month, but not quite as many bonds as they did the previous month. And eventually it's going to go down to zero. And the question is, do they go down to zero in October or do they go down into zero, down to zero in like November or December? And they decided it was going to be October, uh, which makes absolutely no difference to the real world because if they extended it for another you know, six weeks, it would only be another $5 billion or something. And they were like, what's the point? So let's just finish it in October. And yet, for all that people understood that this was really not such a big deal, this was massive news in the markets, which are already at all-time highs. This quantitative easing has been blamed or credited for driving every single asset class in the world, stocks, bonds, commodities, you name it, up to nosebleed levels. And people really care about this. So, Kathy, tell me, what is going on here? Well, look, they used to be buying $85 billion a month. Um, I think right now they're around $55 billion a month, and they're going down, as you said, in October 25, and then they're going to stop. Um, it should be said that uh, there's another part of it, which is very low interest rates. That's also juicing the market. So all these investors can and banks can borrow at very low, cheap money, it's called. Um, so what's going on is the Fed has, through monetary, you know, their monetary powers, tried to improve the economy. And we've talked about this briefly before, but the idea is we can't act, expect Congress to act to actually give a stimulus to the average person. For, for example, the people that are underwater with their mortgages, a lot of people are still in that situation. Um, Congress doesn't seem to want to deal with it because, it, you know, it's the deficit thing. So we're going to ignore Congress, and but the economy still sucks, so how do we deal with that? And the only answer so far that we've figured out is through the Fed with monetary stimulus, and that's what this looks like. What the result has been that the banks and investors have been able to improve, you know, raise the stock market and improve their money their uh, situation. Sheet, they're rich. The rich have got richer. If you have lots of money, if you have capital, you're rich. Right. And that, that for some people, that that's improved the situation. It hasn't improved the situation for everyone else. And my question, of course, as always, as an occupier is, is that actually better than like the reality of the situation for the average person. So I have yeah, to I, I have to ask one well, ask Kathy one question about this, which yeah. is last week we we didn't talk about it for technical reasons, but there was a fantastic jobs report, and we had three hundred thousand people getting new jobs in the space of one month, and the unemployment rate came down to six point one percent, and it looks that. The real economy, not just the people with money, but the real economy is ticking along quite well and jobs are being created and unemployment is coming down. So is this not actually working? Okay. So thanks for asking. Um, So a lot of those jobs are temporary jobs or part-time jobs, not good jobs. Um, The unemployment rate is, is, as we've probably discussed before, but as everyone should know, is misleading because it only counts people that are actively looking by their definition. So it doesn't address the fact that there's lots of people who have sort of permanently retired from the job situation. And there's also other kinds of just, you know, 
confusing stuff. Like the Wall Street Journal reported that there's all sorts of jobs available in trucking, for example, that they can't seem to fill. But somewhere embedded in that article, I was glad to see, it also mentioned the fact that they're not actually willing to raise wages yet. So that's the other thing that's going on is that we're, we are seeing some kinds of recoveries, but the wages are actually not going up. Well, they are. If you look at the if you look at the average wages in the jobs report, they're ticking up. Less than inflation. So I think I I think I'm a little bit more upbeat about what's going on in the real economy right now than you are. Just in the sense, I mean, the temporary jobs thing is is always an issue, but it's generally looked at as a leading indicator. The temporary jobs come back first. The the, there's a little bit of noise also in the jobs report about how many people in the household survey say they're they're taking temporary jobs for economic reasons and whatnot. But I think most of the indicators at this point are like things really are. If the current trend continues, things are looking up. Um, but, you know, quantitative easing, I, I, I can't help but think this is just going to be one of those issues that people are going to fight about for years and years and years because it really is. And, I, and Felix, you're looking – I mean, maybe you have a different opinion about this, but I think you're just fighting it's a ca- counterfactual. It's sort of the, the Timothy Geithner thing. You so, know? But what and side so, are you on? Is, did, I, this, is it a force for good, a force for evil, or does it make no difference at all? I, I hate to – this is going to be the worst of all possible answers, but I – don't know because um, it's you know on the is this counterfeit how much how much worse would the U.S. economy the, the the worst of all possible or the most negative interpretation is that essentially they were buying eighty five billion dollars worth of bonds and those bonds banks were using taking that money weren't using it for necessarily job producing weren't lending it to people to open factories that were going to be necessarily you know producing lots of jobs but they were lending it to people who needed to raise money for like a junk bond issuance for a company that really wasn't going to be hiring that much more but needed to raise capital desperately or that they were lending it out for really expensive real estate deals in France that were just raising the values of commercial real estate there without really producing much of a a, a trickle down effect for anybody that is the and at the same time the real economy has just been sort of healing in the US as consumers have deleveraged and kind of healed from the recession separately. That's, I think, the worst of all possible interpretations of what the Fed has done. The other is that some of those $85 billion is has in the end juiced lending a little bit and trickled down and made life a little better. I, I don't know how you resolve this argument um, ever, really. I think it's just always going to be one of those, they, they did what they thought was necessary. I maybe annoyingly sort of agree with Jordan here. We'll never know for sure. Those are, what, that, that, what that's we, such music to my ears. What, Felix. We have, <laughs> what we have is a conflict between, on the one hand, what you might call the Amir Sufi Atif man approach to the economy, which is, you know, the, the, the money is the money stuff. And in fact, it can make the real economy worse rather than better, even if stock markets are going up. On the other hand, you have the approach which Alan Greenspan always used to have, and is actually true to a certain extent, which is this thing called the wealth effect, which is that when stocks are higher, people feel richer, people feel happier, they're more prone to spend money, and that the margin will, will help. The fact is that, you know, for all that there are unanticipable, unanticipable, how do you say that? Unanticipated Consequences which can't be anticipated <laughs> um, to quantitative easing, it's something which has never been tried before, and we don't really know what the consequences will be. It might make the financial system more fragile, more prone to crashes or something like that. It is something. And and at the margin, probably, as Kathy said, in the absence of any useful fiscal policy, um, something is better than nothing. I, I'll just say one last thing. I mean, I agree that quantitative easing has succeeded in, in some things. And one of those things is that small businesses, which we always talk about, you know, this is the trickle-down effect. We're trying to get small businesses to be able to borrow money. They have actually never complained that they can't borrow money. 
Their yeah. biggest worries are like regulations and taxes, not can I borrow money. So it could have been worse in the sense of we, if we didn't have any quantitative easing, we could have had no um, no borrowing for, for small businesses. That would have been a worse, okay? Yeah. But when, when you talk about the wealth effect, I'm going to have to re-ask who feels wealthy, who feels happy that the stock market's up. And the, the answer is... The people who listen to the radio or newscast every day when the newscaster comes out and says, and stocks have hit a new height. I mean, you don't even need to own stocks, but somehow it is generally understood in the USA I would that love when to stocks are high, see that study. Yeah. I mean, because I mean, stock ownership is, is distributed. So, I mean excluding 401ks because that's where it gets a little bit more complicated but it is concentrated and even 401ks are concentrated pretty heavily in the top 20% more like 10% right and so I go back to the fact that I just worry that when people think stocks are high we are good that they don't look uh, below that sheet a little bit. That's it's, that's well, what I'm worried well, about. Well, you know, this is this is the um, the eternal debate. The, well, this is the the standard thing that you want everyone to be in delusions of prosperity because that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. But <laughs> but in, in um, <laughs> you can feel you can fool all the people some of the time. Exactly. Um, we are going to move on to American Apparel, Mr. Jordan Weisman. Can you tell us a little bit about the? The craziness there's, that there's is so this much company. to tell, though. There's so much. Okay, so last month the big news was that American Apparel, um, the the mid 2000s uh, kings of, of hipster fashion, had finally gone and fired their controversial, let's say, controversial, lewd, lascivious, uh, loche, however you want to uh, describe him, uh, CEO, founder, and really mascot Dove Charney. Um, after just years of complaints, sexual harassment suits, um, just out to wazoo. This is a man who, of course, famously had uh, pleasured himself in front of a reporter in 2004 who was writing a you see, profile I told of him. you we would have the happy ending. Yeah, there's – well, so he also – I don't think you know what a happy ending is. <laughs> yeah, was, well, he also did uh, – yeah, this isn't quite a happy ending either. But uh, he, he, there, there, he also uh, – Got received oral sex in front of the same That's reporter closer. during the interview. Yeah. <laughs> he also there was a, after he was fired, a video came out of him parade just running around naked in front of his employees in a loft while they videoed it. I mean, he was known as the pantsless CEO for a while because he had a habit of walking around his you know factories pantsless. Um, but he was sort of he was the brand for a long time, and he did kind of and he was the genius or genius. What you want to say? He came up with this idea of sort of combining the idea of made in America uh, garments with uh, this sort of you know with sex with kind of uh, you know Brooklyn inflected L.A. Silver Lake inflected uh, you know sexual aesthetic. Anyway, he was finally fired, and there was this huge question that arose, which was why now? The board kind of said they, they had these allegations. Again, they kind of came back to the sexual harassment suits and some really piddly misuse of company funds. It was, why had they fired? Why did it take so long? And this Just week, to, to make the audience yeah. wait for the answer to that, I, I just want to throw in that, I mean, and by the way, I, I was reading a lot about this this week, and I really have almost nothing to say or almost just too much to say about it. Like, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. But one of my favorite little tidbits was that he seems... Well, he seems like a crazy man, but like he he seems to think that since he hasn't been caught sexually harassing someone since 2012, they can't possibly want to fire him. Oh, now. that was a yeah, that was a wonderful. He's, like, he's just like, that, hey, you guys haven't caught me for two full years. Yeah, <laughs> ever since that's right. He's like, that was part of it. it was like, there hasn't been any new allegations since 2012. I, I have, I have reformed myself for the past 48 <laughs> for the past, 24 months. So therefore, or I'm paying again. people off with my own money. Yeah, I mean, that was well. No, they didn't. He, they part of, one of the allegations was that he had given them large severance contracts with company money in order to make sure that he wasn't exposed to personal liability. 
in any event, the big question was, were they really firing him because of some new information about uh, his you know, sexual proclivities? Or was it because American Apparel had been reduced to a penny stock? He was a sort of haphazard manager, and they desperately want an excuse to turn the company around. In a large kind of TikTok of this whole thing, Business Week had a very, very important detail, which was in March, American Apparel had issued a bunch of new stock. Um, which in the process diluted Dove Charter's share from, 23, from about 43%, I believe, down to 27% of the company. Essentially, he became vulnerable for the first time. So if you want a pretty glaring reason why maybe after years and years of doing things like masturbating in front of reporters and you know getting sued for sexual harassment, that he finally, just for whatever reason, got fired now, this seems like maybe a hint of what it was, that this is why it happened. Well, now. I mean, I think, I think what we're seeing is that American Apparel started off very very successful and then Dove Chani who's not who, who's very good at putting his finger on the pulse of hipster culture is probably not very good at running a major publicly listed company um decided that he wanted to go public, decided that he wanted to expand and be huge and have shops everywhere. Because for most of its existence before it went public, it was just a wholesaler. It never had any retail outlets at all. And then once he started getting into retail and expanding and investing, uh, he did a bunch of things. He went public, which involved giving up a certain amount of stock to the public. He then, in 2005, 2006, started borrowing money. Mm-hmm. Um, which was dangerous because it starts in introducing a, an amount of leverage into the company. He found himself with a certain amount of difficulty paying that money back, partly because he couldn't find a CFO who could stick around for longer than about three weeks. <laughs> and for all of these reasons, every time you, you sell stock to someone else, every time you give a lender leverage over the company, every time you install a board of directors who's nominally your boss... This stops being your company and starts being just another public company. And when you're just another public company, as not just Dove Chani, but someone like Steve Jobs has found out in the past, you can and will get fired if the stock price goes down. Yes. So one thing that interests me that's related to the story, I'm not going to say it's directly about this guy because he's so just so sleazy that it's hard to think <laughs> about him, um, is this idea of terms of... Um, with the, the mandatory term, arbitration. Yeah. yeah, the employment term. Employment, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, contract, essentially, which basically said, as as I understand it, you have to be willing to be sexually harassed. Well, it said, it said <laughs> in all fairness, what it said was that American Peril was a, quote-unquote, sexually charged work environment. Which right. <laughs> but I also think there were some things about, like, you're not allowed to talk about yeah, it being was, here. It was or, basically like you, it was like working at Apple, essentially. Like, you have a code of, like, omerta kind of thing. And every time, every time you get promoted, you have to sign this thing again. And then when you leave the company, you get a severance package where you have to sign it again. Right. And they're very keen for no one to talk about what happens inside American Yes. Apparel. And it just, it just, it's like the terms of service, that's the phrase I was looking for. The terms of service that are like proliferating all over the place, and including to when you're using an app or whatever, they seem, or when you eat some cereal, I heard something about like, I don't even remember the brand of the cereal, like you by eating the cereal, you've agreed not to sue the company for anything. <laughs> <laughs> something ridiculous. Yeah. And I was glad to see that in this case, the judge was called it unconscionable. Like yeah. you, this is an unconscionable 
you know, clause in your, like, agreement. Which I believe that's, like, the legal. Like, you, they have to call it that. that that's, like, the legal bar. I'm so like, happy to see that. I want them, I want a, there to be, like, a review of terms of service where the judges get to say unconscionable a bunch of times. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I, it, well, it's very rare that they will actually pull that. And um, it's, but, I mean, I think it doesn't help American Apparel's case that, you know, you have someone who is so obviously sleazy that, in this case, it really kind of is unconscionable. Well, one thing that, that I think is interesting here, I, I should add, is that Charney is not done yet. He's he's not he's not dead yet, um, and that's because he's sort of waged this battle with the help of a, a hedge fund, a Standard General, to buy back shares of which now essentially he handed all of his shares over to this hedge fund, which then began buying more, and now has a forty something percent. And, stake and, in the and company. then lent him money to buy the shares back. So he has a large non-voting stake in the company. Yeah. he's basically said if I can't run this company myself, I'm going to find these people who I trust to be able to turn the company around. Yeah. And uh, and there's a sort of implicit quid pro quo that if they find that I was fired for no good reason, then once the investigation is finished, they will probably reinstate yeah. me. And now he's a, quote, consultant. He's, you know, he's a strategic consultant. So it's, it's not but, over yet, but the board, I think... You know, clearly didn't want this. They told Dovjani that he should resign. Say, you know, I, you know, my time here is over. They would give him a four million dollar a year consulting contract. It would all be very amicable. And he was like, no, you can't do that. And so they, what they they said, well, in that case, we're going to have to fire you, and then all hell broke loose. <laughs> because not least because under the terms of one loan, one ten million dollar loan. Um, if he was fired, then Lion Capital could call in its $10 million loan immediately, which they did, which caused a lot of the financial yeah. chaos. So in any case, well, let's stay on the topic of financial chaos at publicly listed <laughs> companies and stay on the topic of things which aren't necessarily a good idea. Yeah. So we're talking about cupcakes. <laughs> um, and I just have a little story, which is that when I worked at the hedge fund De um, it was like an all male environment, except for me. Um, but every now and then, there were these people, th- women, who were charged with coming in and g- distributing the cupcakes. Um, <laughs> and wait, 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 when was this? In 2007. In 2007, already the cupcake craze had made it into the quiet corridors of D.E. Shaw. That is yes. such a fall from like the Wolf of Wall Street era. <laughs> like, and well, but, so I have a theory about it. It was like cupcakes. we had the, the well, the, you know, the, the credit crisis really started in 2007 yeah. in August, you know, and everyone, and, like we liquidated the, the um, equities book and it was like a big thing. And everyone was really worried. And cupcakes just make you feel better. It's like they're comfort food, right? Yeah. And then the crash actually happened. And then after the crash happened, crumbs were everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. And everybody now, was when like, you can say we just crumbs, go for the cupcake, please? You know. Are you talking about the brand or just the crumbs of the cupcakes? Yeah, both. Both. I mean, everywhere I looked, everywhere I turned, there were many crumbs cupcakes. And sometimes when it was a really bad week, there were big cupcakes. Well... <laughs> So, so, so there were that, this this is the cupcake indicator. You could tell what was happening in the markets right. by looking at how many cupcakes no, there were at the issue. This, this is not data driven, but let me just yeah. throw in an actual non-statistic because I don't have it off the top of my head. But after nine eleven, everyone started smoking again. 
everyone. I mean, everyone started smoking. After the financial crisis, everyone started just chowing down on cupcakes. That is what happened here. And what, what's happening now is that it's, it's in the past. People do not need cupcakes anymore. People are like, whoa, shit, I'm not dying. I should probably <laughs> stop eating cupcakes. The world isn't over, and I actually have to go to the gym, and I'm stopping eating cupcakes now. And that's why crumbs have are we gone. Have reported the news? Jordan, can you, can you like butt, butt in here and, and explain why on earth we're talking about yeah, cupcakes? So this is, I, I absolutely love this story because I feel like you actually may have just explained why crumbs is gone. Very uh, crumbs. Than, what's crumbs? So that's what we're. So crumbs is this uh, cupcake chain that went public uh, about two. Uh, about, it was 2011, a few years ago. So this is a, a series of stores, yes. which do nothing but sell cupcakes. Not nothing but. I looked at their prospectus when they went public. Their product line was 70 percent cupcake. Um, so they had some diversity. What, what else was there? I don't... Uh, Small cupcakes. Large ca- there were, I don't know if their large <laughs> cakes were... Because some of their cupcakes were basically cake-sized, but in the shape of a cupcake. It was like a, like a foot-wide diameter cupcake. I mean, For like, technical reasons, yeah. they weren't allowed to call no, them cupcakes. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the SEC's <laughs> stance cake. on that was... Um, Fat cake. So they, this was, they, were, they were sort of the... In, in New York especially, they were kind of the... Um, yeah, I mean the the cupcake craze began with lines outside Magnolia Bakery and can even be traced way back to sex the Sex in the City days. You know they kind of popularized them, but then eventually Crumbs became kind of the face of the cupcake craze, and, and they were wanted to expand around the country, open more stores. Not and unlike America. And what apparel. they did, just like Dove Chinese, they went public. They exactly. listed themselves on the stock exchange to raise money and invest in growth because clearly. This is the kind of thing which you want to invest permanent capital well, into. The cupcake the, race. The, because the, if the, ten the, cupcake stores <laughs> in, in a six-block area is good, then twenty is better. That was the theory. <laughs> yeah. No, they actually did at some point in the prospectus. They said, you know, one thing we have to consider is same store sales are probably going to decline because we want to concentrate more in the markets we're already in. So they were saying we're just going to flood them. I mean, they were telling their investors uh, we're going to flood the market with cupcake stores. That's our plan. You know, it worked for Dunkin' Donuts. But it didn't work for Crispy Yeah, but Dunkin' Donuts it, it, it plays a very different... It didn't work for Krispy Kreme. Yeah. Dunkin' right. Donuts also did it by diversifying. They were, we're going to get into breakfast. We're going to get into coffee. They weren't... You know, we have yeah, Dunkin' Donuts is actually a coffee, sh- it is. coffee yeah. shop. Yeah. It's not a donut it's, shop. Yeah, it's more I'm like just saying, Starbucks. if you live in Boston, you know, you just say, go down this street... On the third Dunkin' Donuts, turn right. I mean, it just like that's <laughs> so, the kind of thing that Crumbs was going for, and it just didn't work because I, I, they only sell cupcakes. I want to offer an alternative theory to why Crumbs went down. Um, besides, I think yours is actually probably. I want to understand why Crumbs went up. You see, I think we all know why Crumbs went down because <laughs> like this is a ridiculous business model. The question is, why did Crumbs go up? What was it at oh, the I time of the theory. IPO that people thought? Because the thing about stock is that they are permanent capital. Yeah. You, you give away your capital, they never pay it back unless they occasionally pay a dividend but Crumbs, as far as I know, wasn't paying dividends. The idea was that you were betting on a multi-decade growth story here. And that's the thing which confuses me. Who, who thought that this fad was going to be a multi-decade growth story? Well, you know what? Okay, so here's the other theory I have about this. The other side of this belief in crumbs that people clearly demonstrated was a belief in Weight Watchers. Because that's the other thing. You have all this, all this you know, marketing. That a- another every- troubled stock, we might add. Right. So people were wrong on both counts. But I'm just saying people know that people will be wanting to lose weight for a long, long time. And they'll be willing to pay good money. And then they're going to fall off the wagon and buy cupcakes. <laughs> That's my theory. Actually, you know what? I think I think that you've given me an answer to what? my question, Kathy. What the, the the crumbs was basically an obesity trade. 
Yeah. As is as is Weight Watchers um, at heart. It's an obesity trait. Yep. If you think that America is going to get fatter, and historically speaking, this is a good bet to make, then maybe one way of playing that in the market is to buy cupcakes and Weight Watchers. And it turns out that America is getting fatter, but the bet doesn't it's, it's actually it's, I would it's like, I'd like to add one more thing along the lines of the they're not dead yet uh, sort of much like American Barrel uh, Crumb so they announced they were closing their stores earlier this week well, they did close they did stores. close their stores however however a white knight has arrived somebody um, there is just, just like the person who rescued the Twinkie right yeah basically uh, exactly these, these food some people just grow an attachment to these foods but basically a group of investors including among among others uh, Fisher Enterprises which uh, bought Dippin' Dots out of bankruptcy back in 2012 another there has decided to possibly give an infusion of cash to Crumbs because they think it's a really strong brand and there's something that can be done with it and who knows who knows maybe they see something that we don't but there so it's not this story don't write them off yet don't don't wipe those crumbs away yet so i will wipe those crumbs away and move <laughs> on to the numbers round because i think we've said all we should reasonably say about cupcakes I, I, one going, last thing yeah. they're bad they're not good no cupcakes. no they're horrible they're, they're, they're terrible lead in, they're cupcakes. over frosted I, I, I make better cupcakes from the mix at cup. my house they, you probably do they violate every my rule my 12 year old making. makes better cupcakes at my house the true lesson of this story is is that if you want to make cupcakes, you just have to make cupcakes. You can't try and short-circuit it by going to the store. I'm going to start with my number now because I really want to stop talking about cupcakes. <laughs> and also, I have the lowest number, so I go first. My number is 25%, which is the amount by which UberX has dropped its prices in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, they also dropped their prices by 20% in... New York. And while UberX was always competitive with taxis in most cities, it was maybe slightly more expensive in New York, maybe slightly less expensive in San Francisco. It is now clearly less expensive than a yellow cab in pretty much every major market. And this is a very aggressive move by Uber to say, we're not going after the black cab anymore, any black cab industry anymore. We are going after the yellow cab industry, and we want you to just be able to hail an Uber more easily and more cheaply than you can hail a cab. And that is, is a bold move. Another bold move, <clears throat> which I was happy to see, is that Uber has announced that it will not do price gouging anymore, which it got in trouble for after Hurricane they, they Sandy. Will, they, will, they will continue to do surge pricing, yeah. but they won't do surge pricing any higher than whatever the highest surge price was in the past 60 days. Right. That formula is, doesn't make it, sense to me as yeah. a mathematician, but it, but I'm happy to see that they've decided not to do stuff like in an emergency. In emergency specifically. We're talking like, you know, if Sandy comes back for right. another round like that. that really <laughs> piss people if off. If there is an earthquake in San Francisco that rends the city in two, because, then and, they and will this do is, and this is And this is all part of the same thing. that They want to become a public utility. And if you want to become a public utility, you have to be okay with that kind of regulation. Yeah. Yes. And the, pu the public has to have some trust also. You, you, your number is not much higher than my number. Mine is 27. It's also percent. Um, I was going to go to the, for the 0.27, but I decided that was too cute. So 27% of home buys are by new buyers. It used to be 40%. So what we're seeing is that, you know, a third of the new buyers have disappeared from the market. Um, this, is for, this is for young people. Basically, yeah. we're talking about why— Is this why a student loan thing? 
No, it's well, it's kind of it's I'm, a, just, I'm adju- a addressing that. I actually have a friend thing. who's very interested in this issue because his theory is that it's not about student loans. So he actually came up showed me data that showed that no matter whether a young couple has student loans or not, they're not buying new houses. So it's not a student loan. Is thing. this just new houses or it's houses in general? Houses. Okay. It's how, new buyers. Yeah. The idea here is that this is a generation that grew up seeing their their neighborhoods just killed by the recession. And they're just like, what's so great? Remind me what's so great about owning a house. I don't see it. And I think they're right. This has been one of my hobby horses for as long as I've been blogging. One of the first things I did when I started blogging at Portfolio was a massive sort of six-part series on why home ownership is a really bad thing and how it hurts economy. uh, A couple years ago, actually, 2012, um, Derek Thompson at The Atlantic did a a feature about this, basically. We uh, we pissed off pretty much everybody our age by titling it The Cheapest Generation, which was supposed to be sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it just... But this was sort of part of the theory. Is that yes, it's economic. Obviously, there's an economic, but it, it's also eventually economics become cultural, and that it's sort of you. Uh, it, there may be aversion to buying homes in the future, and certainly the, the sort of large, expensive homes that become a sort of uh, can become a millstone. There's this idea that homes are not an asset, they're a liability if yep. you own them. And this is an idea which almost no Americans have had up until 2008. And then 2008 happened, and now many more people have it. And frankly, it's a good idea. There's nothing wrong with renting your entire life. My, you know, If you go to Germany, loads of incredibly successful people have never dreamed about buying their homes. I think also there's just you know a level of common sense that you know the... the, the you know, illness of the, the the state of the economy has made it harder for young people to set themselves up, to establish a career, to uh, put themselves on a permanent path. And until you do that, why on earth would you want to own a home that you have to then sell in order to move to another city or to have move to another neighborhood even that's closer for your commute? I mean, it exactly. just doesn't, this, this it is doesn't great. Mean, this is great for labor mobility. And yeah. Labor mobility is good for the economy. So let us cheer the fact that yeah, people I'm, aren't I'm happy homes. for them. I'm it's not good for, for the long-term house prices if you want to invest in house prices going up but that's why we have capital coming in and well, buying the houses okay. and renting them out i'm glad it's- you brought that up i mean i've always been of the of the mindset that you know why do we always want the housing houses to be so expensive why do we want stocks to be for expensive? people who don't have houses yet it's actually better for them to have houses cheap so i'm i'm okay with the houses being cheap too yeah, yeah. go on my number uh is in dollars, it's, again, $46,410. At least that one isn't a percentage. That yes. would have been scary. <laughs> and this is the amount of money I, I checked right before coming into the studio that so far one Zach, quote, Danger oh, Brown it's the potato has salad. raised on Kickstarter what, to what, make what is, potato salad. What is interesting to me is that this number is actually going down. It's it was gone down. over 70000 at one point. So here's the deal. I, I talked to I, – I did a little bit of research on this. And, and something, something a lot of people don't realize about Kickstarter is that once you've pledged money, um, you can actually adjust that pledge or cancel that pledge uh, up until the whole thing closes. So, you know, uh, for people who haven't been, uh, you know, plugged into viral news this week, um, for whatever reason that might be, uh, this guy basically went on Kickstarter before July 4th and decided, as kind of a joke, said, I'm making potato salad. I want to raise $10 to make potato salad. And then all of a sudden, donations just started coming in. He, coming he in, said, coming if in. you give me a dollar, then I will say your name when I'm I'll making the, the potato, potato salad. salad. And now it just snowballed. And all of a sudden, he had $1,000 and then $10,000 and then fifteen, and then twenty, and just grew and grew and grew. And the joke, it went from kind of funny to 
pretty funny to not really funny anymore because people are, in my opinion, um, people are just throwing money at this thing, just beating this joke to death. Um, but he now has decided he's going to throw a giant potato salad party in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and invite, quote, the entire internet. My take on this is that I, I think really he should, I, I just, I the internet has a right to throw a party. It's not wrong for him to do it. This is people's money that they've spent, decided to spend this way. It's not like it would have gone to charity necessarily anyway. But it feels to me like this is the sort of instance where you should take that money and give it to a food bank. And let me tell you, even though Kickstarter technically does not allow you to raise money for charity, the reason it might work is because he is allowed to claim that, mo- that overfunding because he only, by the end, was saying, give me $3,000 as profit. He can claim that as profit and then pay taxes on it and then use the rest however he likes. So this could, if he decided, or hell, throw a big fundraiser, turn this but, thing well, into... Can, can you explain to me, you see, this is... I, I'm, going to, I'm going to disagree with you on okay, this one. Okay, please do. Because the whole point of the potato salad thing was a kind of Reddit-style random act of pizza. You know, it was just, yeah. we are going to take some per- completely random person on the internet and dump a bunch of money on him for no particular reason, just because we can. This is not charity. It should not be turned into, like, Whenever someone has good fortune, the first thing we say is, oh, well, you don't really deserve it, so you should give it to someone who deserves it. That's, that's not capitalism. I mean, is it? No, no. Actually, so I, I actually, no, no. Let me tell you, I did address this. I wrote this up, and I said, I think there, there is a part of me that would that, that that thinks he kind of did earn this. I mean, he made people chuckle, like right. He basically he was a comic on the internet. Like he 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 did something people thought was funny, and they tipped him for it. I'm just gonna sorry. I, I'm gonna use that phrase at the, at the end of anything I don't like. I'm gonna be like, that's not capitalism. <laughs> That's my new line. Thank you, Felix. Uh, we, we, you still have, what, two weeks left to give this guy money? To yeah, make, I mean, to you know what? If you agree with Felix, give him more money. If you don't agree with me, if you agree with me don't give him more money. That's, I think, the... <sighs> On which highly capitalistic note, we, uh, <laughs> we, are going to, we are going to bring this happy show to a happy end. A happy ending. The, the yeah. happy ending. Well, it's not entirely an ending because, as ever, we will be back next week. Jordan Weissman, I think, will not be back. No, maybe on vacation next week. On holiday, so we're going to have a very special guest from London. I'm very excited about this one. So do tune in next week, and please subscribe to Slate Money in iTunes. We're easy to find. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store, and if you leave us a review, it will help to spread the word. And please also write to us with your comments and kudos and complaints and anything else at slatemoney at slate.com. The producers of Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of all of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. And so for Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. Until next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.